Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Disclaimer, some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. On this episode, I'll be discussing the Charles Bravo case, who died of an agonizing death from ingesting the poison antimony, or another name for tartar emetic, in a pretty white house in Balham, England, in 1876. About 20-some years ago, I was a member of a literary club, and the novel Death at the Priory, Love, Sex, and Murder in Victorian England by James Ruddock was the book of the month, alongside one about Jack the Ripper. I read the book in a day, it was so interesting. I had never heard of this case until then, and it just blows my mind that this case was never solved. In 1875, following the blissful wedding of Florence Ricardo and Charles Bravo, their relationship took a downturn as Bravo revealed his brutal side, subjecting his new wife to violent abuse. Then, months later, he died. The case is still sensational, notorious, and unresolved, also known as the Charles Bravo murder. Sensational, notorious, and unresolved, also known as the Charles Bravo murder. It was a crime committed within an elite Victorian household at the Priory a landmark house in Balham, London. Leading doctors attended the bedside, including the royal physician Sir William Gull, and all agreed that it was a case of antimony poisoning. No one has ever been charged with the crime. Charles Bravo was born Charles Dulaney Turner in London and baptized in St. Hyler, Jersey in 1852. He was the son of Augustus Charles Turner and Mary Turner, but later took the surname Bravo from his stepfather, Joseph Bravo. He was educated at Trinity College, Oxford and the Middle Temple and was called to the bar in 1870. By the time of his marriage to Florence Ricardo, daughter of Robert Campbell, he had fathered an illegitimate child. His wealthy wife, Florence had previously been married in 1864 to Alexander Louis Ricardo, son of John Ricardo MP, but had been separated from him because of his affairs and violent alcoholism. She herself had had an extramarital affair with the much older Dr. James Manby Goley, a fashionable society doctor who was also married at the time and she had fallen out of favor with her family and society. Ricardo died in 1871, and Florence married Charles, a respected up-and-coming barrister, on December 7, 1875, terminating her affair with Gully. When her first husband died, Florence had inherited 40,000 pounds, which added to her already wealthy status of being an heiress. By all accounts, during the first month of their marriage, they both seemed genuinely happy. After a brief honeymoon in Brighton, they returned to London. 
In letters to their parents, they described going riding together, playing lawn tennis, going into town, and entertaining relatives and friends, including local aristocrats. Florence planned a Christmas party with 31 invited guests, including the mayor of Streetham. That Christmas, she apologized to her parents for all the pain she had caused. On January 9th, she sent them a telegram informing them that she was pregnant. Charles jokingly referred to the baby as Charles II. It was after this point that Charles started to become angry with her extravagance. Florence later stated, quote, I told him that he had no right to interfere in my arrangements. I reminded him that I had always lived within my means and I was accustomed to looking after my own affairs, end quote. Charles then became agitated and lost his temper, the first of many heated arguments that they would have. Police inquiries into the case revealed that Charles's behavior towards Florence was controlling, mean, violent, and bullying. Florence was wealthier than Charles and had opted from the start to hold on to her own money, an option only recently provided by the Married Women's Property Act of 1870. This led to tensions within the marriage. Florence left the Priory to stay at Buscott Park, complaining to her parents about Charles's violent evolutions of temper and saying that his meanness disgusted her. Charles sent her a series of apologetic letters begging her to return home and promising, if you come back, I will so take care of you that you will never leave me again. During her absence, however, staff at the Priory reported that Charles had called Florence a selfish pig who had been spoiled all of her life and that as her husband, he had the right to stand up to her. Charles also took the opportunity to tell Jane Cox that he was dismissing her. Now, Jane Cox, I will get into a little bit later, but she was the servant of Florence but that he would give her enough time to find a new position. Although he was grateful to Mrs. Cox for bringing them together, Charles was jealous of her closeness and influence over Florence and had wanted to fire her for some time to reduce expenses. Sadly, shortly after returning to Balham, Florence had a miscarriage. She became very weak, was bedridden, and grew depressed. After her doctor recommended a change of air, Florence planned a holiday in Worthing, but Charles and his mother opposed the trip due to the expense. When Florence said that she would confront his mother for interfering, Charles lost his temper, shouting, I will go and cut my throat. He then struck Florence and stormed off. In March, Charles told Florence that he felt it was time for her to get pregnant again. By then, Florence doubted whether she'd be able to carry a child to term. But a few weeks later, she telegraphed her parents to inform them that she was pregnant for a second time. As she had feared, the second pregnancy also ended in a miscarriage on April 6, 1876. Considerably weakened, she planned once more to travel to Worthing to rest and recover. Before Florence married Charles Bravo, she and Dr. Gully had an affair which they had tried to keep secret while maintaining the outward appearance of propriety. Her parents discovered of her infatuation with Dr. Gully and insisted that she cut off all ties with him. 
Florence refused and became estranged from them, but because of the inheritance from Alexander Ricardo, she was now independently wealthy. Florence later admitted that she and Goli had had conversations about marriage. Although Goli was technically married, he had been separated from his wife for 30 years. He promised to marry Florence after his wife died to avoid scandal and planned to move with her abroad. Florence moved to South London and leased a large mansion called the Priory in Balham, where she could keep two horses and a garden. Dr. Goley retired and leased a house that was a five-minute walk away called Orwell Lodge. According to their servants, they frequently visited each other, went shopping, and went riding, but never spent the night together. Author James Ruddock states, however, that in May of 1872, their relationship was exposed when Florence was invited to stay at the family home of her solicitor, Henry Brooks, in Surrey. Mr. and Mrs. Brooks returned home from a walk to pick up an umbrella when they discovered Florence and Dr. Goley having sex in their drawing room. A heated exchange ensued, overheard by the servants, and their relationship quickly became the subject of widespread gossip. Goley instructed his solicitor to sue Mrs. Brooks for slander, but soon withdrew the instruction. The social consequences were devastating for Florence. Two servants threatened to quit, some grocers refused to serve her staff, and the invitations she sent out for an afternoon tea and dinner were returned without explanation. Within a week, the news had reached her parents in Buscott Park. According to Allison Harris, a descendant of Florence's eldest brother, William, Robert Campbell was incensed and outraged, but also broken by the scandal. Florence's telegrams to her parents and her letters to her sister, Edith, went unanswered. In 1873, Florence traveled with Dr. Goley to Bad Kissingen, a spa town in rural Bavaria. Later, she discovered she was pregnant. Fearing further scandal, she allowed Dr. Goley to perform an abortion, which went badly. Florence became seriously ill and later stated that Jane Cox, her lady's companion, had saved her life by attending to her around the clock for six days and six nights. The ordeal effectively ended her affair with Goley. Florence refused to see him for two weeks, ending their physical relationship, and started to distance herself from him. Wary of, of being socially outcast and longing for reconciliation with her parents, Florence started to seek a way out of the relationship. When she was moving into the Priory, Florence had decided to hire Jane Cannon Cox to oversee day-to-day -day management of the household, including her large staff. Mrs. Cox was a widow who had lived in Jamaica and returned to England with her three young sons after her husband died. Florence said that she was very impressed by her, particularly her kindness and her excellent manners. Neighbors in Balham would later recall the sight of Florence and Mrs. Cox traveling together in their open-top carriage and comment on the attraction of opposites. Florence, the young, beautiful widow, with her jewelry and flowing hair, Mrs. Cox, the small shy woman draped in black with the hardness and the sheen of a strange insect. Florence and Jane grew very close. 
During this period, when Florence was cut off from her family and from society, Jane Cox became a maternal figure and confidant. Florence later stated, quote, I called her Janie and she called me Flory. At one time, she was my only friend, end quote. The poisoning of Charles Bravo occur occurred four months into the marriage. Bravo's death was drawn out, lasting from two to three days and very painful. It was particularly notable that he did not offer any explanation of his condition to the attending doctors. On April 18, 1876, Florence and Charles went into town together, briefly quarreling when their carriage passed Orwell Lodge. They stopped at the bank and at the jewelers on Bond Street before going to their separate ways. Florence went shopping on Haymarket and bought hair lotion and premium tobacco for Charles as a peace offering. Charles went to a Turkish bath on German Street and met her uncle, James Orr, for lunch at St. James's Hall. Florence was resting in the morning room when he returned to the Priory. Charles decided to go riding, ignoring the groom's warning to not take any of the horses out since they had already been exercised that day. The horse then bolted for four miles, taking him on a long and unpleasant ride. When Charles returned, he was stiff and exhausted. According to the butler, Frederick Rowe, Charles was in great pain, looking exceedingly pale. Florence said she would help him to his feet when his bath was ready. At dinner, Charles was extremely irritable toward both Florence and Mrs. Cox, complaining that he was sore from the horse ride and that his toothache had returned. During the meal, he was anchored to receive a letter from Joseph Bravo, criticizing him for playing the stock, stock market. His stepfather had opened a letter from Charles's stockbroker showing that he had sold shares at a loss. Before going to bed, Charles went into Florence's bedroom to scold her in French for drinking too much that day as she had since the miscarriages. She had had champagne at lunch, a bottle of sherry at dinner, and had asked for two glasses of wine upstairs. Woo! That is a lot of alcohol. After Florence had fallen asleep, Charles suddenly burst out of his bedroom shouting, Florence, Florence, hot water. The maid, Marianne Keebler, was halfway down the stairs, waited for Florence to emerge, went back up the stairs, knocked on Florence's bedroom door, and then alerted Mrs. Cox. Mrs. Cox ran to the other bedroom and found Charles vomiting out the window. He fainted, but Mrs. Cox stayed with him rubbing his chest and sent Mary Ann downstairs for mustard and hot water. They poured it down his throat, which caused him to vomit, but he remained unconscious. Mrs. Cox told Marianne to tell the butler to send the coachman out to Streetham for Dr. Harrison. Marianne then woke Florence, who got up saying, What's the matter? What's the matter? Alarmed to see Charles not moving, Florence held his hand, sobbing, and asked whether a doctor had been sent for. When Mrs. Cox replied that she had sent Dr. Harrison, Florence was horrified and screamed for Roe to get another doctor, any doctor who was closer. I also wanted to note that during this time period in history, uh, a lot of women, especially wives that were abused by their husbands, would use poisons such as arsenic to slowly poison their husbands or poison them just enough that they would become ill and would not be able to become violent with them. 
Leading up to his death on April 21, 1876, Charles Bravo was seen by six medical professionals, including one of the most highly regarded physicians in England. The first two doctors were Dr. Joseph Moore of Balham, who arrived first, and Dr. George Harrison of Streetham, who arrived after midnight. Moore and Harrison conferred and agreed that it was a serious case of poisoning and that Charles would probably die. They asked Florence, Mrs. Cox, and Mary Ann if they had any idea what could have caused Charles's symptoms. Florence suggested that Charles had had a heart attack after the horse ride and also mentioned that he was prone to fainting fits and that he had been worried about stocks and shares. Dr. Harrison told Mrs. Cox that she was wrong when she suggested that Charles had ingested chloroform and that the symptoms had likely been caused by arsenic, to which Florence responded, Arsenic? When he asked if there was any poison in the house, Florence answered, Only rat poison in the stables. She also stated that Charles had no reason to take poison. Florence suggested sending for Roy's Bell, Charles's cousin and best friend, who was an assistant surgeon at King's College Hospital in London, with his own practice on Harley Street. Bell brought with him his superior, Dr. George Johnson, who would later become vice president of the Royal College of Physicians. Dr. Johnson, in return, brought in Henry Smith, another assistant surgeon at King's College Hospital and an in-law of Charles's mother. Charles awoke after his cousin arrived and upon questioning, insisted to Bell and Johnson that the only substance he may have sw swallowed was laudanum, which he had rubbed on his own gums to treat his toothache. Also noting uh, the fact that laudanum was very popular during this time period. Um, it's actually completely outlawed now. Um, it was an opiate that was extremely, extremely addictive. Mrs. Cox took Bell aside and told him that before he fainted, Charles had said, quote, I have taken poison, don't tell Florence, end quote. She then repeated the claim in front of Dr. Johnson and Dr. Harrison. Dr. Johnson asked if it was true, but Charles said he did not remember mention mentioning poison. Florence telegraphed his parents to come at once. Her father-in-law, Joseph Bravo, later stated that Florence did not seem much grieved and that she had given contradictory explanations for his condition. She also told Charles's former nanny that she thought it was food poisoning from lunch while she said to Roy's Bell that what had happened to Charles would always remain a mystery. Finally, Florence wrote to Sir William Gull, who at the time was a leading English physician, and requested that he see her husband, who was dangerously ill. Gull had become famous for saving the life of the Prince of Wales, the future King Edward VIII, by diagnosing and treating typhoid. Francis later explained, quote, I believed that if anyone could save Charles, it was Sir William. I knew that he had saved people when others had given up all hope for them, end quote. Sir William knew her father very well as a patient and acquaintance. They had dined together at the Reform Club. After examining Charles, 
Gold told Florence that he was sorry that nothing could be done to save his life. Gold pushed Charles repeatedly to reveal the name of the poison he had taken, but until the end, Charles insisted that he had only applied laudanum in his mouth on his lower jaw. In his final hours, Florence offered to send for the rector of Streatham, but Charles declined. Instead, he recited the Lord's Prayer with his family. To Florence, he said, Make no fuss when you bury me. He will make... He made a will favorable to Florence, witnessed by his cousin Bell and the butler Rowe. To his mother, he said, Take care of my poor dear wife. Charles Bravo was pronounced dead by Roy's Bell at 5.20 a.m., just 55 hours after he had collapsed. Following the death of Charles Bravo, two inquests were held. And the details were considered to be so scandalous that women and children were banned from the room while Florence Bravo testified. The search, searching <laughs> cross-examination launch, launched the career of the lawyer George Henry Lewis. The first in inquest returned an open verdict. The second inquest returned a verdict of willful murder, but no one was ever arrested or charged. The first coroner's inquest into Charles Bravo's death took place on April 25th to the 28th, 1876. Impressed by the credentials of the many doctors and surgeons who had examined Charles, the coroner for East Surrey, William Carter, stated that the cause of death was likely suicide and sought to spare the feelings of the family. By keeping the inquiry private, perfunctory, and not calling Florence Bravo as a witness. Carter accepted Florence's request written by Mrs. Cox at the request of Joseph Bravo to hold the inquest at the Priory where she would provide refreshments, a practice which was not unusual at the time. The postmortem concluded that Charles had ingested 30 to 40 grains, 10 times the lethal dose of tartar emetic a derivative of antimony. Based on the evidence and testimony of the witnesses, the jury returned an open verdict stating that there was not sufficient evidence under what circumstances the antimony had entered his body. Friends and family of Charles Bravo objected to the implication that he had committed suicide, saying he had been in his usual health and spirits. Troubled with how the inquest was handled, Barrister Carlisle Willoughby, a friend and colleague of Charles Bravo, contacted Scott, Scotland Yard to voice his concerns. Joseph Bravo also spoke to the Metro, Metro Police and hired criminal lawyer George Lewis. Detective Chief Inspector George Clark was assigned to investigate. On May 8, 1876, Florence, who was staying in Brighton, consented to Clark's search of the Priory. On May 11, 1876, the Daily Telegraph first brought national attention to the mystery surrounding Charles Bravo's death, denouncing the inquest as having been conducted in a secret and unsatisfactory manner. The sensational article named some of the doctors, gave details about the dinner menu on the night of his death, and speculated that the burgundy which he alone had drunk had been poisoned. 
On the advice of the Buscott Park physician and her father, for one week Florence had her solicitor advertise a reward of 500 pounds for anyone who could produce evidence of selling antimony to a member of the Priory household staff. At first, suspicion fell on George Griffiths, the coachman fired by Charles, who had reportedly shouted in a pub that Mr. Bravo would be dead in five months. The police found that a large quantity of tartar imitac had been sold by a chemist in Streetham to Griffiths in the summer of 1875, which he used on horses to eliminate worms and stored in the Priory stables. However, media interest in Griffiths subsided after it turned out that he had moved to Kent and was not in the area when Charles Bravo was poisoned. Soon, the newspapers were filled with gossip about Florence Ricardo's past affair with Dr. Goley and recent sightings of Dr. Goley together with Mrs. Cox, as well as rumors that Mrs. Cox had been fired, thus providing a motive. The accounts of Dr. Harrison and Dr. Moore were published in the Daily Telegraph, while Dr. Johnson shared his perspective in The Lancet noting that Mrs. Cox had initially claimed that Charles admitted to swallowing poison before fainting, a claim which Charles himself questioned when he woke up. On May 18, 1876, Surgeon Simon, MP, asked Home Secretary R.A. Cross in the House of Commons whether he was aware of the unsatisfactory nature of the coroner's inquest into the late Mr. Bravo's death. Increasingly, suspicions were raised both publicly and privately about Mrs. Cox. Florence suffered a collapse in brain fever while Mrs. Cox abruptly left for the Priory to collect her belongings and move to other accommodations in London. On May 17, 1876, the Daily Telegraph reported that the Treasury Solicitor Augustus Keppel Stevenson had concluded a preliminary inquiry of 30 witnesses, but that this did not include Mrs. Bravo or Mrs. Cox, implying that they were both suspects. Anxious to demonstrate their innocence, Florence and Mrs. Cox each submitted written statements through their solicitor, Mrs. Cox stating in writing that she had perjured herself and suppressed evidence during the first inquest, leading the Lord Chief Justice Sir Alexander Cockburn to grant the Attorney General Sir John Holker's application to open a fresh inquiry. Florence received a torrent of anonymous hate mail through her letterbox in Brighton and could no longer look out the window toward the promenade without seeing passers-by gazing up at her window. She paid her servants a, month, a month's wages and left Brighton for Buscott Park before returning to the Priory. The second coroner's inquest took place from July 11th through August 11th, 1876 in the Bedford Hotel in Balham. It was attended by the Attorney General himself with eminent members of the bar holding briefs and was covered extensively by members of the press. Over an unprecedented 23 days of testimony, members of the public crowded the streets to try and catch a glimpse of the witnesses giving evidence and finding out the latest news each day. Sir William Gull, the most celebrated physician in England, appeared on the fourth day of the inquest. 
Gold stated that Charles did not behave like a man who thought he was being murdered and that he had swallowed... <laughs> Whoops. He had showed no surprise that he was dying of poison. Gold believed that Charles had swallowed antimony intentionally but lost his nerve and had asked for hot water to be flushed out of his system and remained convinced of Florence's complete innocence. Interest into the case reached its peak when Florence testified for three days starting August 3rd, 1876. According to author James Ruddick, for Florence Bravo, the coroner's inquest was the worst experience of her life. Rather than focusing on the circumstances leading up to Charles Bravo's death, his family's lawyers became fixated with proving that Florence had continued her affair with Dr. Goley during their marriage and subjected Florence, Dr. Goley, and other witnesses to repeated questions about her past sexual conduct. The lurid details of her criminal intimacy with Dr. Gull before marrying Charles was covered in depth in national newspapers such as the Times and the Daily Telegraph, as well as penny newspapers such as the Illustrated Police News and telegraphed by correspondence to newspapers across <clears throat> Europe, the U.S., and Australia. Florence broke down repeatedly, but on the third day of questioning about details of her sexual history with Dr. Gull, she finally objected. According to the Times, she said, part with tragic force and part tearfully, and with perfectly just indignation. That attachment to Dr. Goley has nothing to do with this case, the death of Mr. Bravo. I have been subjected to sufficient pain and humiliation already, and I appeal to the coroner and the jury as men in Britons to protect me. I think it is great shame that I should be thus questioned, and I will refuse to answer any further questions with regard to Dr. Goley. The Saturday Review reported that the audience was sympathetic and moved their feet as if applauding. Other commenters remarked ironically that Mr. Bravo's own counsel had managed to let the dead man's own criminal in intimacy with a prostitute at Maidenhead remain in decent obscurity. Nevertheless, the coroner allowed lawyer George Lewis to continue this line of questioning unchecked. Over the course of the inquest, the likely method of transmission of poison was identified as Charles's water jug, which he drank from each night before going to bed. Although considerable suspicion of Florence remained, there was no direct evidence against her. Florence had not prepared food or given medicine to her husband and had not signed any for any poison in her name. In the end, the inquest failed to produce any meaningful new evidence. The coroner's jury ruled out suicide and death by misadventure and found that Charles Bravo had been willfully murdered by the administration of Tartar Imatek by an unknown person or persons. And into the aftermath, although Florence Bravo had avoided being indicted, the public shame and suspicion which persisted destroyed her life. Jane Cox was the first to pack her bags and leave, followed by her other servants, and then she received notice that the landlord of the Priory was taking steps to evict her. 
Florence's eldest brother, William Campbell, urged her to move to Australia with him, but she refused. At the end of September 1876, she returned to the Priory and arranged for all its furnishings to be sold by auctioneers Bonham and Son. She changed her name to Florence Turner and left London permanently on April 3, 1877. She settled in South Sea, Hampshire, where she bought a property called Lumpus Village, which she renamed Combe Lodge and hired a housekeeper, two maids, and a coachman. Florence rarely went out and eventually drank herself to death, much like her first husband, and died on September 17, 1878, at the age of 33. So this concludes this episode, but what I would like to know is what do you think? Do you think Charles Bravo committed suicide by poisoning, or do you think someone murdered him? Personally, I think what happened is Florence was trying to avoid an altercation, so she slipped a little bit of poison into his um, water jug in his bedroom but apparently put too much um, and it killed him that's what I think happened because as we know during this time period women did do that to subdue their husbands um, so they could avoid being you know abused and things like that so it is very probable however um, you know, another theory is that Mrs. Cox poisoned him because he was threatening to, you know, terminate her employ employment within the household. And, you know, or the other thing is that he just accidentally put poison in his food or his drink and it just happened. Um, but... I really think it, you know, somebody murdered him for sure.